This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. But I must be a little bit about the Fed, but I, I got to tell you, Jason, what's really interesting, I got an email from Peter Bookvar uh, weighing in, and he just put a long line of Zs. Yeah, I'm with him. <laughs> a little bit of a snoozer. I saw the redhead come across like, rates <laughs> unchanged, further <laughs> gradual increases. Data dependent, no, all that good stuff. But anyway, we've got a smart person with us to talk about policy interest rates, and we do want to check in with him. Josh Wright is back with us. He's chief economist over at iSIMS on the phone from New Jersey. I mean, come on, Josh, though. To be fair, this is a bit of a snoozer from what we got from the Fed, but maybe that's good. I think that it is a good thing um, because it, it suggests that they don't have any particular concerns at the moment. You know, we want, we've want gone through this period right now of a lot of uncertainty ahead of the election. A little bit of a breather is a good thing for this economy. I think at this moment we don't want the Fed to be rocking the boat. And, uh, I mean, they, they basically came out with just affirming where they already are. The thing that was notable to me was uh, how they underlined that there's a strength in the growth rate of the overall economy with the headline GDP numbers, but moderation in business investment. And that's really important for thinking about their outlook, uh, because if business investment hasn't picked up yet, then they're not going to change their view that this current strong rate of growth is above the kind of trend potential of the economy. And that means they have to keep hiking. So, Josh, now all eyes turn to December. Does anything here change your view of what we'll see a month from now? It doesn't change my view of what we'll see a month from now. I think of it actually uh, it's a mark of how much of this was on expectations that I'm already marking my calendar for November 29th, because that's when the minutes of this meeting will come out. Yeah. And the thing is that there aren't a lot of moving parts, as you might say, in this particular meeting. It's the last one without a press conference. But what's going on behind those closed doors? How is the thinking evolving about what the next year is going to bring? It's all about the year ahead at the Fed at this point. I mean, it's, we're growing so strongly um, with GDP, but also with job growth. Inflation numbers are in line. Um, it's all about what are you going to do? What do you think is that neutral level? And what are you going to do once you get there? And by the way, what, how are you thinking about confronting uh, the political challenges? There's been a lot of criticism of the Fed coming out of the White House in the last two or three months. And they've got this new communications committee um, thinking about, well, we don't know what they're thinking about, but I've got to think they are focused very much on those political wins. So we talked about the most read story in the past hour has to do with uh, Lloyd Blankfein and Goldman Sachs. The most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours has to do with the Fed being in denial about a $4 trillion dilemma. And we're talking about the unwind of their balance sheet. And there's some concerns among the Wall Street community um, about this unwind and, uh, you know, a depletion, if you will, in terms of those fixed income investments. Are you concerned? What's the impact that we need to think about as investors? Well, the question is whether or not the Fed actually is able to bring the balance sheet down in a way and if it understands the environment that it's operating in right now. Mm-hmm. They think they have control of the rates. They're certainly going to project a confidence in all their official communications. But that is one of the things we have to watch. Um, the, the effective Fed funds rate, they set a target rate, but the effective rate, what actually occurs out in the market, that's been drifting higher and higher within the range that they set, raising concerns that maybe they don't really 
uh, has control of it because they have this still expanded and bloated balance sheet right. based on all the actions that they took during the crisis. But the worry is that they're going to end up draining too much money from the banking system, right? And then that'll bring about volatility uh, in the financial markets and maybe undermine their ability to set rates, um, uh, you know, on the fe- on the Fed. So I'm just curious: is that something you guys are talking a lot about, or not necessarily? I think people, well, obviously people are talking about it in part because there's not a lot else to talk about. I mean, for a long time, it's been hard to talk about these technical Fair issues. Fair enough. Yeah. Every time you mentioned, you know, interest on excess reserves, uh, news anchors' eyes would glaze over and they'd say, quick, let's change the topic. I Give lost Jason. Anything. He's on the floor. We've lost him already. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing some online um, shopping now. Just kidding. <laughs> but the reality is that um, you know, the Fed has made this decision to make its balance sheet uh, a real policy instrument. And now, you know, they're facing one of those difficulties of uh, how much more complicated makes the job of hiking rates. Um, and you can see that even in the way that they set their projections going forward, whether or not they, they expect the Fed, Fed funds rate to eventually be a point forecast, um, an individual uh, level, or if they're going to continue to set a target that is uh, just a range. And we know that in the long term, they, they expect uh, for us to be headed back towards a specific level. But um, when you look at their forecast for the next couple of years, most of them don't expect that to happen until 2021 at the earliest. So they, they're aware that this balance sheet issue is going to be with them for a while, and they're going to communicate very carefully. I'm sure they've right. got a lot of back, backup plans yeah. um, to ensure that things don't get out of hand because they know that it will be so closely watched. Very good. Thank you so much, Josh Wright, Chief Economist at ISM's, on the phone with us from New Jersey, giving us his reaction to the Fed decision. All right, now we turn to a guy who knows more than a little. John Moninger, you are the managing director for Eaton Vance. You're based in Boston, but, you know, made your way down the East Coast to join us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. Nice to be with you. Thanks for joining us. This top-of-mind index I'm fascinated by, especially right now, because we're always trying to get in, in investors' minds. And i got to tell you, after a week like this one where the news cycle – to call it a cycle is, <laughs> is – I don't even know if that's right anymore. Yeah. Uh, how do you keep up with it all, and what are investors thinking? What did you take away uh, from this survey? Yeah, as you know, thank you, by the way, for having us on. Uh, the, the survey we've been doing for many, many years, since 2014, and, and it's got some consistent elements of it. We've been watching volatility for a long time, continue to be at the top of the list of concerns. And again, no surprise in what you're seeing today. The other one, though, I think correlates very well with it, though, was income. And it was really that fear of, of rising rates that mm. was really coming up in, in a very big way in the survey. And you can see a 24% increase just quarter over quarter and folks concern about rising rates. John, does it reflect to some extent uh, a younger generation to, that don't remember 17% interest rates or 70% you know, rate mortgages? I mean, and volatility, this is more normal. What we've had the last decade was abnormal. I, you know, I think you're exactly right. I think it's not even just generational. I think it's just people forget. Yeah. Right? I think you're, you just go back and whether Fair. you're older generation or, or certainly younger generation, I think people just forget about what those times were. And, and I think what you're looking at today is, you know, folks trying to deal with, especially advisors, how do we position investors in the face of rising rates and in, in an increased level of volatility what I do, What I do find interesting in, in some of the research that you guys sent over as a result of this index and the survey is things like lack of confidence among right. clients, anxious. Yeah, even um, the anxiety, the anxiousness really jumped out to me as well. And asking about a looming recession. Yeah. That, to me, is a much more negative slant. 
Yeah, we were. That was one of the was One big takeaway for me was the seventy percent of advisors reported having conversations with investors about a looming recession. That, that's the highest we've seen in a long time. Uh, we certainly the other ones would maybe make a little bit more sense. Certainly around rising rates, Fed decision making, geopolitical risks, or things that we've been watching for a long time now. Right, been pretty yeah. consistent. The recession one though was a as I think people have been worried about an inverted yield curve. I think historically people would always go back and say in those moments, historically anyway, mm-hmm. we've seen a recession loom not, not long afterwards. I think people are just worried about that, just given how fast rates have been moving up. And what about taxes? Because, you know, that jumped out at me as well. We're sitting here in New York. There's been a lot of reaction over the course of the year to the state and local tax uh, deduction going away, you know, essentially. And really sort of hitting people's bottom lines, thinking differently about their home values and and all sorts of things. How does that play through, and and do you think that stays consistent as we get into 19? No, I think we really do. I'll I'll say one of the stats out of the survey, I'll just point one, out: 64% of advisors were repositioning clients' portfolios as a result of tax reform. So that's that's not an inconsequential number. That's pretty big. Uh, Two ways I think they're doing it. One is the traditional way, muni bonds, and we're seeing a lot of continued activity in having bonds managed in an active way or using laddered strategies or otherwise. And we've seen a greater usage of that, not only in the survey, but certainly even in our own business. I'd say the other one, though, is really trying to get a Before you get to that, remind us what a laddered strategy is. Yeah, so a laddered strategy would be take a maturity range. Let's just use one to five years, and I build an equally weighted, if you will, portfolio of bonds that mature in one, one, two, three, four, five years out over time. So that's what a ladder would do. And in a rising rate environment, they tend to do better because you're, you're picking up yield as you're ratcheting up you know, as, as maturities are moving forward. I'm always curious when anybody ever does a survey, it's like, what does it indicate? Is it an mm. indicator of anything? Like, do you guys go right. back now and look at last year's survey and yeah. say, okay, we tend to get these right. You've done these, as you said, for what, four or five years, yes. six years maybe at this point. Um, and I just wonder if it is a good indicator of what? <laughs> yeah, so, so a couple of them that have been. One is the indicator for uh, volatility, right? It's been pretty consistent that the folks' fears and advanced advisors' fears, the clients' fears have been actually pretty good. Yeah. The one that's been odd, if you're always looking for conflicts as well, and the conflict you see is we've always had this weird fear-greed thing. We've asked the question, what motivates you more? Are you motivated more by fear or greed? And what was interesting is the last time we saw it as bullish as it was indicating right now, meaning it was motivated by greed, was the beginning of 2015, which was not a great window, if you may remember. Yeah. So, huh. so there has been a couple moments when confidence gets too high. Obviously, the markets have not done very well afterwards, and we've seen volatility spike. And so I'm always looking for, and we're looking for, those conflicts in the survey, and can we educate to the conflict? I kind of love it when people are anxious and a little nervous, because to me, it just says, <laughs> It's a much no. better position. Well, I do. I just yeah. think when people are all in, it makes me a little bit nervous. Uh, John, thank you. Thank you. Great to check in with you. John Moniger, he's Managing Director at Eaton Vance, $459.8 billion in assets under management, based in Boston. But uh, lucky for us, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Really interesting to yeah. dig a level deeper there. Uh, appreciate you being with us. I just think it's fancy meeting you right here. So as we've been Did talking, this is the, the most read story on the Bloomberg in the past hour. Actually, I think it's moved down a little bit, but it's pretty much consistently been what Wall Street is reading, and it has to do with Goldman Sachs Chairman Lloyd Blankfein. Michael Moore, back with us, finance team leader at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This is uh, a story that uh, ranking very high among our most read here on the Bloomberg Terminal. Tell us a little bit about what's going on here. Right. So, you know, last week there was a ton of information that came out 
from the Justice Department when um, you had charges come out against some Goldman Sachs bankers, some financiers over this 1MDB scandal. Uh, and in that, uh, there, it described a 2000— This has to do with the Malaysian Sovereign right, Wealth Fund, right. known as 1MDB. Yes, okay. yes. Uh, for those who haven't been following the, <laughs> this long-running— you've, you've been eating and sleeping it. So yes, it's... yes. Over the last five years, it's— uh, Right. Been, this is a long— yes. I mean, let's just remind people, this mm-hmm. is a long-running saga. This captured headlines yep. years ago, right. uh, as you say, and it basically involves some apparently very bad behavior related to— a massive sovereign wealth fund in Malaysia. It goes up to the top Mm -hmm. of the Malaysian government, the then Malaysian government, enter Goldman Sachs, and apparently, based on this exclusive, enter Lloyd Blankfein. Right. So the the documents described a 2009 meeting with a high-ranking Goldman executive. Uh, Our reporting showed that that executive was Lloyd Blankfein, then the chief executive officer, still the chairman of Goldman. Uh, So at the very top levels of Goldman. They were trying to um, develop a relationship with the new prime minister, with this new sovereign wealth fund that ultimately they went on to raise $6.5 billion for. And they will tell you that that, um, every indication they had was that money was going to be used for development projects, uh, for infrastructure, for things for the economy. Uh, But a lot of it ended up uh, where it should not have uh, diverted to other purposes. Well, and not abnormal, right, for the senior or the head of a, a well-known investment bank uh, and bank, really, right. um, to be in that position and be involved in the early stages of it, correct? And yes. I, up I, or wooing them to be, you know, to do it with Goldman. Yeah, I think Goldman. that's what Lloyd Blankfein would say is, is the prime minister of Malaysia comes to the U.S. Yeah. to meet with business leaders. Of course, I'm going to meet with him, and I don't know who – all is in his entourage, but one of the people that helped arrange this meeting was Joe Lowe, who's the uh, Malaysian financier at kind of the center of this whole scandal. And Tim Leisner, the Goldman side of things, was also at that meeting. Right. And what I find fascinating about this, too, is, and you've been doing this for a long time, Michael, and you cover Goldman Sachs as a reporter and have you know overseen our finance coverage in both London uh, and here in New York. We hear all the time about how important relationships are, how these Mm -hmm. are cultivated over long periods of time, and how bankers are highly compensated for their ability to cultivate new business. Right. Um, And so it's interesting, and I think that's one of the reasons this captures so much attention, is that it can go, you know, awry uh, when you have some some bad actors uh, entering the picture. So what's the what are the implications of uh, of this? Well, I think it it you know is easily explainable, but it also shows that Goldman, at the very highest levels, was um, involved in a developing relationship with one named DB. This wasn't just um, some rogue employees right. out in Asia going off and doing this huge bond deal. This, this bond deal uh, was approved and you know and was signed off on. But the question is, what was the bond deal for? And Goldman would say that. You know, every indication we got was that it was for legitimate purposes. It was on the up and, and if up. somebody yeah. else, after the fact, took some of those proceeds, uh, that's not on us. We were there to raise money for this fund. But the banker who took a lot of the proceeds and did some interesting stuff, buying mm-hmm. jewelry for folks and artwork for Leonardo DiCaprio and other things, this is Mr. Lowe, correct? Yes. yes. And he was in the meeting with Goldman, I mean, with, with Lloyd Blankfein. 
Yes, the uh, indication from the documents and from our reporting is that he helped arrange it and he was in the meeting. And I have to say, you know, the other element that strikes me about this is, you know, sovereign wealth funds have become such a major source mm-hmm. of investment and very mm-hmm. lucrative clients for investment banks. You know, right. Clients for investment banks and candidly, uh, ripe targets, as it were, for hedge funds, private equity funds, infrastructure funds uh, all around the world. And yet they are often tied to governments. Um, you know, yep. we've seen this play out more recently as we've looked at Saudi Arabia and what's happening there and like yeah. all the implications of the money that's been gathered by the Saudis, which presumably, you know, has a destination or a desired destination, in a lot of big funds. I think one of the questions, though, is this guy, Lowe, who turned out to be the one who was really kind of tapping into the fund, right, and mm-hmm. misusing the funds. I mean, he helped Goldman win. Uh, the Malaysian business, right? And I do wonder about right. transparency and homework that Goldman did or didn't do in kind of checking out who this guy was, right? Because he was a middleman. Right, right. And so, you know, Goldman... Uh, like if I was indic- Lloyd Blank Fine, right. I'm just speculating, I would want to know if I'm going into a really important meeting, like I really know kind of who everybody is. And I'm not right. saying he didn't, right. but I'm just saying, right? Yeah, and, and there's no indication that he knew Lowe was going to be in that meeting or right. he even knew who Lowe was. You know, it, as he's approaching it, this is a meeting with the prime minister. And, you know, the prime minister brings an entourage with him, you know. And he was so, part of, and it was part of the prime minister's part of the entourage. Prime, prime minister's entourage. But uh, to your point, uh, Leisner... And other bankings, according to the documents, did try to bring Lowe in as a Goldman client, and compliance blocked that. They said, you know, there um, are questions problems, about right? this guy. And so, uh, one of the things that came out in last week's uh, documents was that Leisner and perhaps others at Goldman went around compliance to interact with Lowe. Well, and as you pointed out, you know, Lloyd Blankfein has just uh, recently relinquished the CEO title to David Solomon. Uh, we've been talking a lot about that recently. You were here with us uh, on the show yesterday, Mike, to talk about uh, the partners. One thing I did want to mention, because mm-hmm. I learned this uh, today, you know, we were talking about, you know, two uh, married people being right. named partners. Apparently, this is at least the second time it has happened at Goldman. Oh, really? I learned it back in 1996. Uh, it also happened that two married people were named partners at Goldman. So update one there from <laughs> me, <laughs> at still, least. Still a cool and thing. we found out that uh, the husband of that husband-wife couple is the son of a former CEO of UBS. There you go. It all comes Six together. Six degrees of separation. Wall Street <laughs> is ultimately a very, very, very small place. Mike Moore, we count on you for so many good insights uh, here, London, everywhere. Great to have you uh, back with Carol and myself. Bloomberg Business Week this week is really amazing because it talks about the smoothest period of Trump's presidency. It's over. Really, everybody, it's over. Josh Green is with us. He wrote this story. It's also the remarks in the magazine. National correspondent at Bloomberg Business Week. And, of course, um, knows everything when it comes to, I feel like, politics and really kind of the inside stories. He's based in D.C., but in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We do love talking uh, to you. And this story is, first of all, just set the scene, because you, you kick off the story saying, hey, folks, the smoothest 
couple of years of the Trump presidency, it's over. Yeah, I mean, when you talk to Democratic and Republican strategists about what happened on election night, one of the points that everybody made in both parties was that as hard as it is to wrap your mind around, the last two years are going to be the smoothest years of Trump's first term uh, because Republicans had unified control. And as crazy as that period was, now Democrats have power, they have subpoena power, and that's going to make everything even crazier. So strap in and, and get ready for what is likely to be an insane two years. And why? I mean, I think everyone is anticipating that the Democrats are obviously sort of fired up and ready to go. But what are the mechanisms that they may use and how are they different from maybe previous iterations sure. of this. Well, by dint of the fact that Republicans had con- complete control of Congress, the White House and both houses of the Congress, there really was no mechanism, no no checks and balances um, to you know stop or investigate Trump, to hold Republicans accountable because Republicans didn't want to investigate their own president. Now that Democrats do have that power, there's a sort of uh, pent-up anger at Trump and frustration with a lot of what he's done. Um, a lot of Democrats feel that uh, all sorts of things from the you know, Hurricane Katrina. Uh, um, Maria. <laughs> Maria, respond. Thank you. I, I'm sort of, Listen, it's I'm sort of riffling through everybody. my mental Rolodex <laughs> yeah. of hurricanes You've got here. no sleep this week. Everything from Trump's, that's true. <laughs> Everything from Trump's hurricane response to, uh, you know, potential Russian meddling, to, you know, all this kind of stuff has, has essentially been uh, uh, swept under the carpet by Republican investigators. Well, now Democrats control committees, or soon they will in January. They're going to use those powers to go back and hold Trump to account in a way that they feel he hasn't been before. And that is going to be very contentious process as we saw from Trump at the press conference. We'll dig into that. But, Josh, to be fair, the Republicans did the same thing for the Democrats. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, this, this is something... Democrats. Yeah, you know, I go in my in my piece, I go back and do a little bit of history. And, you know, back in the 1950s and 60s, oversight used to be a fairly collaborative process. It was right. very gentlemanly. Well, that began to change in the 90s when Republicans, led by Newt Gingrich, decided they really wanted to go after Bill Clinton. Um, they gave the Oversight Committee chairman unilateral subpoena power. Mm-hmm. And ever since... Since then, it's been a much more hostile and aggressive thing. You saw that in the Benghazi investigations, the Fast and Furious investigations when when uh, Obama was president. Now you're going to see a version of that from Democrats. We don't know exactly where they're going to focus. I have some ideas, but they've now got the power to flip the table and go after a Republican right. president. All right. So, Josh, one of the ways that people know you is your excellent book, The Devil's Bargain, uh, which really detailed better than anyone what was underneath, as it were, the 2016 election. You spent a lot of time with Steve Bannon. You spoke to him for this piece. And one of the elements here that I want to make sure we explore with you is coming out of the midterms, there is a shift in the map, and, a sh- and especially related to suburban and rural voters what they did in 2016, what they had done historically, and what they did in this yeah. election. So Trump in this election essentially set the contours of a new national political map by running the campaign that Bannon essentially orchestrated or architected back in 2016. Very heavy on nationalist themes, on issues like immigration, uh, the economy, things like that were only secondary. That had the effect of driving um, metropolitan suburbs to the Democrats. That's why they won the House. But it had another effect, too, in the Senate map especially, which was it galvanized rural Americans 
even more strongly behind Republicans, this time not just Trump, uh, but all Republicans in the Senate. So you saw a bunch of seats flip. That has divided the country even further. I mean, we're even more polarized, if you guys can wrap your heads around that, than we were uh, a a week ago. So that continues this trend uh, in American politics that Trump, I think, is really the driver of, although we we, we see plenty of Democrats exacerbating it. Are we more polarized in, in terms of the composition, too, of Congress at this point, Josh? Yes, we are. There were, going into the election, 20 three seats uh, where Republicans held House seats, but Hillary Clinton had won. Um, chips are, are still settling, but there's going to be something like five or six left. And of course, we saw on the Senate side, there were 10 red state Democratic incumbents. A whole bunch of them lost. A lot of things still up in the air, but but pivotal seats like uh, South, uh, South Dakota and uh, Missouri have now gone Republican the way you'd expect from the Trump But results. the conservatives are more conservative that are left, and the new group coming in are more liberal and younger. Uh, more liberal, seconds. younger, more progressive. Republicans are older, whiter, Trumpier, and much less moderate than they were before the election. Strap yourself in, as he said. Get ready, everybody. It's all coming. These next two years are going to make the last two look like a cakewalk. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek, author of The Devil's Bargain. You got the cover story this week, the opening remarks. It's all about what's ahead. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. David Dietz back with us, founder, president, and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management. $330 million in assets under management. Uh, David with us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Hey, David, good to have you here with us. We had an earlier guest um, talking about a survey, basically uh, taking a look at kind of what's at the top of mind uh, when it comes to investors, what they're worried about. And some of the results showed that investors are more nervous, concerned about a recession. I'm curious, when you look at this market, when you talk to clients, uh, are you getting a similar uh, reaction? Well, certainly I think the the two top concerns remain the same here. We've got the threat of higher interest rates as the Fed continues to march and tighten up monetary policy. I think the other thing that's really weighing on investors' minds is tariff and uh, trade policy. Um, to the tariffs are a form of taxes. Global trade has enhanced economies worldwide. To the extent you impose tariffs there, you're going to get less trade. That's a negative. Um, certainly, risk Recession fears are always there. There's nothing that we saw um, in the uh, having the worst October for the stock market since 2008 that would allay concerns that those are eventually there. On the other hand, Carol, we just heard from the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. We got their statement. There is no illusion whatsoever to any concern over recession on the horizon. So let's talk about the results uh, and how you play it. After that brutal uh, October, Uh, David, you know, you mentioned tariffs. Is there something to be done in industrials or do you stay away owing to those tariff concerns that that still weigh on folks? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, um, 
industrials had a terrible October. For example, your quintessential uh, industrial caterpillar fell from about 170 all the way down to 115. Um, you know, and, and the concern was that uh, the global economy was slowing. We've seen peak earnings, and of course, nothing we saw about the rhetoric concerning tariffs um, boosted the outlook on the global trade and therefore industrials. Um, so where are we now? Um, uh, so the bad news, of course, is those concerns still linger. The good news, of course, is many industrials now are much cheaper than right. they were earlier in the year. I guess the bullish case here is that the two protagonists here, Mr. Trump and China, I think ultimately they both want successful trade. Obviously, each wants to get the advantage. Each wants to talk about having a more level playing field. But at the end of the day, I think they both realize they're better off with trade than without it. They're going to be meeting later on this month. So I guess the bullish case would be a lot of the bad news, bad outlook is now priced in, and there's a possibility that rationality sees the day of light, and th- and we get some sort of resolution here, which would really uh, light a fire, under, a fire under industrials. So do you pick up the uber industrial here, GE? I mean, talk about somebody who's been beaten up over the last year <laughs> well, or so. Well, you know, so GE is an interesting one. It is an industrial. Of course, um, they're far from being able to uh, assign all their woes to a tariff. If only, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the one thing I think that people may be missing about GE is it is a portfolio of different businesses. It's far from a one-trick pony, and most of their businesses are, as Jack Welch liked to say, number one or number two in their sphere. You've got the healthcare, which is the leader in terms of MRIs and other hospital equipment. You've got aircraft engines. They're they're well-known as as being right up there with UTX. Um, uh, Energy, of course, they've got that 62% stake in Baker Hughes. You've got financial services, where they're fairly strong. Uh, Power, where, although that's been uh, under pressure here because of changes in energy prices and so forth, nevertheless, they are an industry leader. So, you know, they've got a number of different uh, irons in the fire. I think they can see themselves through this. Let's not forget, too, this is a company with about $120 billion in revenue and right now is selling with a market cap of about $79 billion. So, yes, it's got its problems, but uh, many would say uh, at this point it's pretty undervalued. Um, let's talk about other names that you like. Uh, Molson Coors is one, Consumer Staples Space. So consumer staples have not had a great year. People have been seeing a, a stronger economy, and staples are a, kind of a steady eddy. Um, of course, We're talking about are, a beer and beverage company, though. How does the, <laughs> the Yeah, so, you know, uh, um, Bolson Coors is one of your cheapest consumer staples at about eight times earnings, uh, only 120% of sales. What I like here is, of course, Molson recently acquired Miller Coors. They're going to realize all sorts of cost-cutting synergies. That's going to boost their earnings. They also own Blue Moon, which is a craft beer, which is the strongest area, and that's, those sales have been growing strongly. So we think this is something at one point it was over 100 right now it's $64. It could also be ultimately a takeover play. And uh, quickly, before we let you go, about 30 seconds here, David, uh, chip stocks, chip makers, tech's been beaten up uh, mightily. Uh, Who do you like there? So we like the applied materials, uh, which is down about 40% from the first half of the year. It makes the tools which are used to make chips. 
So indirectly, they almost have some involvement in every single uh, chip-related tech product in the world. Uh, it's about 35, down from about 65. Uh, well-managed company. Um, we just think it's it's been sold off way too far in in the uh, concerns in October and so forth. Yeah, down 32% this year. And don't forget, it's got a dividend of, uh, what is it, about 2.3%. So, uh, yeah, way down. Hey, David, nice to talk with you um, on this Thursday. David Dietz, founder, president, chief investment strategist over at Point View Wealth Management, $330 million in assets under management. David joining us, as he typically does, on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.